Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chan, and with me I have Kevin Dong, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. Welcome to Tales from the Frontline, a pandemic podcast. The novel Coronavirus-19 Pandemic is an event to be remembered in the history books. The global impact of COVID-19 has been discussed endlessly since early 2020. Frontline workers have been reported on extensively. However, we rarely hear their own stories. Their stories, those of the frontline workers, deserve to be heard. Tales from the Frontline brings us back to the dawning of the pandemic through the lens of three emergency physicians, Dr. Teresa Chan, Dr. Kevin Dong, and Dr. Jonathan Sherbino. The podcast explores the origins of the pandemic and initial reactions of these providers to the news. The uncertainty is palpable, fear is brewing, and no one knows how long this will go on for. In this standalone special, we will take you back to March 2020. The pandemic has arrived in Canada, and with it, questions around transmission and severity abound. There is no playbook and policies change every day in the emergency room. As the cases grow, emergency physicians become increasingly aware of their role in fighting this virus as frontline healthcare workers. The perspectives provided by the physicians in this episode will give audiences a better understanding of what it felt like to be part of the initial task force that faced the virus head-on. With the sounds of the emergency room in your ears, our experts bring you right into the doctor's charting room during this time. Narrated and written by Katie Van Campen, a third-year medical student and storyteller, this podcast grew from a love of narratives and wanting to give doctors a platform to reflect on the origins of the pandemic. The pandemic started not with a bang, but with a whimper. over a possible outbreak of a new SARS-like virus. Mystery virus started here in the city of Wuhan. Chinese authorities pinpointing its source to this food market. Dozens have been a mysterious virus Chinese. The scientists for the entire city of Wuhan, 11 million people, no travel, in or out, for the contagious new virus to stay where they are for the Lunar New Year holiday. Because we want to This is Tales from the Frontline. I'm your host, Katie Van Campen, a medical student and storyteller from McMaster University, Canada. This episode is meant to be a time capsule of what was going on in 2020. COVID-19 has faded from the minds of mainstream media, but for some healthcare workers, 
it feels only like yesterday. We will be hearing from three awesome, experienced emergency physicians, Dr. Jonathan Sherbino, Dr. Teresa Chan, and Dr. Kevin Dong. These are their stories, these are their lives, and now it's time for them to share it with the world. We may be in the denouement of a global pandemic, but it didn't start as one. I'm Jonathan Sherbino. I am a professor of emergency medicine here at McMaster. I am uh, in clinical practice at St. Joe's. I'm a recovering uh, TTL, so a trauma team leader. And then during my day job, I'm also the assistant dean for health professions education research. And so I've been thinking also a lot during this pandemic about the impact on our professional training, our educational structures, teaching and learning. My name is Teresa Chan, and I am at McMaster University for my academic appointment, but I work at the Hamilton Health Sciences as an emergency physician. My name is uh, Kevin Dong. I'm one of the emergency medicine physicians working at the Hamilton Health Sciences. I'm an assistant clinical professor at McMaster University, and I've been working for almost five years now. For me, it kind of struck home. I had um, some colleagues in Washington, so I don't think we all remember this, but one of the earliest outbreaks was at a nursing home in uh, Seattle. And with subsequent kind of really dysfunction in a lot of the emergency departments there. And so I have a a colleague and a friend who's at the University of Washington. And he and I started to communicate by text. And then I had another colleague in New York City who started describing what was happening in uh, New York City um, in in around the same time of early part of 2020. So this would be mid-February. It seemed in the abstraction, the first reports Um, Then I came home from traveling and I was in Mexico in the middle part of of February, came home. We started thinking a little bit about what this meant. And then the reports that were coming from uh, Washington State and from uh, New York City became more and more dramatic. And then what really kind of caught my attention was what was happening in Italy. And that's when, you know, personal anxiety and concern for what it's meant for the system and for myself and ultimately for my family and my kids started to take effect. Prior to the pandemic, travel was as easy as booking your ticket and showing up at the airport. In March 2020, Dr. Chen and Dr. Dong were in New York for a conference. And when they came back to Canada, the world had already begun to shift. I was actually at a a medical education conference in New York on March 15, 2020. So uh, the week before, we had already planned to go. This is months in advance. And we had went. And before we had gone, you know, we had heard news about rumblings about the pandemic from uh, obviously starting in China and, and kind of moving around the world. But we had never anticipated that it would be coming to North America and, and especially that uh, exponentially that fast. And so uh, there was a, actually a few of our emerged colleagues there. We were in New York and then essentially the lockdown happened, like or at least the, the pandemic crisis. New York, we're seeing numbers in thousands. And so uh, it was kind of interesting being in almost like the center, the epicenter of the outbreak in North America and then trying to find the ticket right into coming back to, to as soon as possible. And I remember when we first came back, all of us were, you know, the, the group as a general for the, the emergency physicians at Hamilton Health Sciences, we were all got kind of at a, at a loss because we were also confused and, 
and obviously concerned about what we were supposed to do. How is the, you know, the care that's going to be provided for our patients? How are we supposed to protect ourselves from all the procedures and things that we do in the emergency department that's kind of, kind of dangerous for us as well, all the, say, the airborne procedures? Uh, at the same time, we also came back from New York. So were we supposed to go to work or were we supposed to isolate? We didn't have vaccinations at the time. If you can try to go back to that uh, mindset, knowing really nothing about this virus. I had heard about this flu-like illness that had been in China, wasn't sure that it was in North America. So I had actually been traveling and uh, been at an academic conference and, and kind of flew back just as kind of the real outbreak was really kind of coming to fruition in in North America um, and got back and didn't get stranded, which is nice. Um, and I think at that point um, started going back to work and going back to shifts. And as we have evolved our understanding of COVID actually one of the shifts in the mid middle of the shift I was told because I had traveled that I needed to leave the shift even though that week I already worked two other shifts um, and so I mean were we mass were we you know like uh, doing all the right things yeah um, but it was one of those things where we were really in our infancy of understanding the disease and the process and and all that so it was really interesting time to live through. I think the other uh, part that, you know, people forget about is kind of family, right? So when I got back from New York, we didn't really know uh, if I needed to stay in the basement for my family or, or you know, what or do I sleep in the same bed? I don't know. We, we didn't really know what to do. So I think all of that really, that uncertainty made uh, the experience quite challenging at the time. And we kind of laugh now a little bit because obviously the numbers were not anywhere close to what it is now. Uh, but I think that that initial uncertainty, the initial kind of blackout, we didn't really understand what's going on moment made the entire milieu, the entire environment just way more challenging for not only myself, but also our group. So I'm obviously glad that we're kind of gone through and past it. But uh, that that first experience was, was very difficult for for everybody, for sure. And it was at that point that uh, the World Health Organization shortly thereafter, I think three days later declared it a pandemic. Um, And so I think that's when it all sunk in that this was a real thing. I remember when I first heard about the virus. It was all over the news, and by the way it was framed in the media, it was pretty clear that it wasn't an issue in Canada. It felt distant, across the Atlantic, isolated in Asia and Europe, I wasn't a healthcare professional, and I certainly didn't expect the virus to become a headliner for the next few years. I remember going to a classical music concert, and I saw someone in a hazmat suit, and I thought, wow, they're taking this way too seriously. So when did the virus become the inescapable presence that hovers over us? As with many things, it started not with a bang, but with a whimper. Dr. Sherbrneau takes us back to the very beginning weren't seeing a significant impact in those early weeks until, and and with the assumption that, don't worry, someone's going to dust off the SARS uh, playbook and we'll be um, well into a whole plan that's one of the accreditation standards for our health systems to imagine how we're going to respond to it. And so we had that leeway um, with that advanced warning from Italy and from the U.S. as to what to do. 
And so work really wasn't being challenged. I think we were all standing around waiting for someone to take up the mantle of here's what's happening at the level of public health, or here's what's happening at the level of the health system, or here's even what's happening at the level of our hospital system. And so those early days weren't much uh, until started, things started to pick up and then we started to see patients. I think it's like all things, crises in the abstraction don't often hit home. In the same way that if you don't hear a personal story around, let's say, cancer deaths, and you just see the abstract figures and statistics, those blur in your memory as uh, a challenge comparator until you hear a personal story or encounter something personally. And and when you hear uh, a friend or a family member who starts to tell you their cancer experience, it becomes much more powerful because our brains are really wired to process narrative and to process story. And so equally it was true, you know, hearing media reports about what was happening um, in Asia and China and on Hong Kong, those were abstractions. When I started to hear a little bit about Italy, well, maybe that looks like a health system a little bit more familiar to me, but still an abstraction. It's when I started to get real concerning personal and firsthand accounts from people that I knew were colleagues that started to up the degree of concern and anxiety, but still within this, with this in the sense of my own experience in the health system was that we weren't seeing significant patient load or um, health system burden, and we weren't seeing dramatic cases. And anticipating that there was going to be a system solution that provided appropriate care pathways, treatment pathways, and PPE. But then that the bottom really fell out. And suddenly we saw patients presenting, realizing we were under-resourced, and those first days were really chaotic as we tried to come to grips with what we were experiencing. It's weird because it wasn't just like a boom. It was it was kind of like a, a rolling panic. There's a concept in epidemiology called patient zero. The idea that a virus can spread from one single person. It was used to explain the 2003 SARS pandemic and a super spreader hotel in Hong Kong where a few rooms next to each other all contracted SARS. The story of COVID spread is not so clear cut. Let us take you back to the end of 2019 when the virus emerged as measly news reports of unexplained pneumonia. December 31st, 2019. The virus is reported in China, but it's generally unremarkable as it's unclear if it spreads between humans. It is almost unbelievable that we didn't even know that at the time. Comparisons are drawn to SARS, reminding people of that particularly deadly disease which spread from southern China in 2003 and infected 3,000 people, killing 774. Though we can see now that COVID-19 has surpassed SARS in all metrics. Many questions remain at this point. What animals transmitted? What's the incubation period? Who is most likely to get infected? At this time, Chinese authorities urged the public to be on alert for pneumonia-like symptoms like fevers, body aches, and breathing difficulties. January 11, 2020. The first death occurs from the virus. A 61-year-old man. Questions remain unanswered. January 20, 2020. The virus spreads. In less than a month, cases are confirmed in Japan, South Korea, Thailand, and in the USA. A man in his 30s develops symptoms after returning from a trip to Wuhan. At this point in Canada, I remember hearing that this was a disease that would affect people traveling to China. History repeats itself, and in this case, the parallels to SARS are clear. 
As I learned in my pandemics and people class in university, pandemics expose the worst of humanity. Asian Canadians have been targeted, yelled at, spat at, and worse. People lashing out at them in the mistaken belief that somehow their Asian descent makes them responsible for the novel coronavirus. As COVID-19 spreads across the United States, so does an alarming rise in hate crimes within Asian American communities. Why did they do that to this car? And it just, my heart just sunk. Racism in the time of pandemic. A young woman wearing a mask is attacked in a subway station. Come here, sanitize your Come here. An elderly woman is chased by a bully trying to squirt hand sanitizer on her. Harassment and assaults against Asian Americans are up sharply. Even more troubling, we are seeing a disturbing rise in hate-filled attacks. This has now led some to worry about how to defend themselves, and gun sales are actually up in certain neighborhoods. With so much media coverage focusing on the fact that this was a virus from China, anti-Asian sentiment became prevalent. The projection of anger, fear, and uncertainty onto the Asian community as a whole led to a parallel pandemic of discrimination directed at Asian culture, cuisine, people, and businesses. In both SARS and the coronavirus pandemics, connecting Asian culture to ideas and images of uncleanliness and China to the origins of the virus provided the fuel for an explosion of racist rhetoric and discriminatory acts. Chinese virus. Yet, this isn't new. Pandemics reveal the dark side in people. They expose our implicit and often explicit biases, using fear to manifest hatred. In the age of increasing Western nationalism, COVID was a fire starter for racism and discrimination. Since the COVID pandemic began, Asian racism has been rising. By March 2021, cities across the country reported an increase of anti-Asian hate crimes from 2019 to 2020, including a 717% increase in Vancouver and 600 increase in Ottawa. This is unacceptable. Honestly, we should be doing better. This pandemic has amplified structural barriers um, based on gender, based on race, based on sexuality, based on socioeconomic status. I'm convinced that that's happened in the sense that I look at the increased disparity of people seeking care in my emergency department um, who are coming in with more severe versions of disease. And I wonder about access to care in, in all manifestations. Certainly, I, I'm a public consumer of media and social media like everyone else, and, and I'm aware of that of that rise specifically towards um, racism, towards uh, people from Asia and find that disgusting and gross, but not unsurprising because I think what happens in moments of anxiety and fear, we try to find what looks normalized to us and to reject the other as a source of danger. And, and so I, I'm not surprised that, you know, living in a world and a culture where we have overt and then and then sometimes unconscious racism that that was not planned and in the flame further yeah i mean to the listeners obviously this is a podcast that uh, i'm i'm korean canadian uh, i was born in korea i moved here when i was seven uh, i'm canadian for all the intensive purposes I, I do speak the native language but i'm way more canadian than i am korean you know but obviously it was heartbreaking to hear some of the troubles that some of uh, the Asian community have had to endure, um, I think, especially in, in the United States, 
uh, especially in the beginning of the COVID pandemic, when certain words and derogatory comments were being used uh, regarding the, the coronavirus, obviously saddened me. I think some of the incidents that you hear about San Francisco, you know, some of the elderly men getting beaten down. I think those things were just tragic and, and not only just the Asian community, but I think, you know, the, the black community and Latin community, and I think all the communities that are, and, and obviously recently in the indigenous community, right? So also the vulnerable populations are inner city populations. So I think just seeing some of the disregard of respect for just humanity, I think, and seeing some of that uh, behavior amongst uh, other human beings, I think was just, it was intolerable. I think it was very difficult to see. But like I said, I think a lot of it was also just a combination of misinformation and people being really scared and acting that out. So I think initially there was a lot of anger, a lot of hatred, a lot of just being very sad, saddened by it. But I think at the same time, I think it gave me a little bit of epiphany that like we needed to do more to, to educate and to help our just not the people that we are suffering, but also the people are doing the suffering to say, hey, listen, like you need to we need to educate you to, to know, because maybe this is not the way to, to act amongst our fellow human. January 31st, 2020, the WHO declares the virus a public health emergency. A Chinese scientist, Dr. Zhang Nanshan, confirms that the virus is capable of being transmitted from person to person. The U.S. State Department warns travelers to avoid China and global air travel restrictions are being imposed by multiple nations. On March 11, 2020, the coronavirus was declared a pandemic. So what exactly happened in those three months to make it a pandemic? By this stage, Wuhan had been completely closed off by the Chinese government. No planes, no trains, no people outside. It becomes a ghost town. Now, the world is aware that this is something that could happen to them. There were far more questions than answers. The uncertainty weighed on healthcare providers everywhere, especially those in the emergency departments. Intubation is the act of inserting a tube into a patient's body to keep that patient breathing when they are unable to do so themselves. COVID-19 is a respiratory illness which can easily compromise your ability to breathe, leading to those with severe COVID-19 needing intubation. Yet at the time, the risk of intubation was unknown, and as a droplet-producing procedure, there is concern that those in the room as the patients were being intubated were at risk. How do we take care of people who we are running ACLS and codes? How do we take care of people who we needed to provide um, care for their respiratory uh, issues? Um, but uh, you know, we also at the time didn't know what type of virus this was. Was it droplet? Was it airborne? Was it a combination? Do our N95s work? Do we need to wear masks? Right. So there was a lot of conflicting evidence initially. And so, and I think there was a lot of uncertainty, not only from the physicians, but from our nursing colleagues, from our uh, respiratory therapists, right? So th there was also a lot of advice and misadvice from the social uh, media and, and the media and, and oh, even from our governing medical bodies, right? So people were saying recommending masks, some people weren't. It, it was just a lot of conflicting evidence and conflicting advice. I think that made it really challenging for us. Some of the cases that really made it difficult for all of our colleagues were really the intubations, right, to, to get into the nitty gritty. You know, there's a lot of news about people who come in and they have a heart attack and their cold blue situation. And we didn't really know if CPR was safe for us. Can we intubate? At some point, we were kind of experimenting around 
using glass shields to prevent us from getting uh, lots of airborne stuff that's come out when you when you intubate a patient. So I think all of that really made it very challenging. And so, you know, I, I don't know if you guys remember, but in the beginning, we were cutting short, uh, codes relatively shorter than we used to, having challenges bringing patients and their families in. All that really just made it very challenging for us. And I still remember a case where there was a patient that came in with uh, a STEMI, like a, a heart, heart attack, and, you know, a young, relatively young 50-something-year-old gentleman. And I remember running the code, and we didn't have actually all the the specific rooms, the pressure rooms for, uh, to help these patients, uh, at least many of them. And so we were trying to put them in places that we normally don't run these codes. And so we didn't know where the resuscitation equipment were. And so there was some delays. And I remember all of that just being such a challenge for, uh, not only just the clinicians, but uh, obviously for our operators, our, our nurses or everybody that's involved. Uh, and so I think that moment was when we started to say, okay, we needed to do more simulation. We needed to uh, increase the training in our group uh, to try to help and optimize our patient care. But I think all of that just really made it challenging. And I still remember going home being like, oh my God, like I, I don't think I did the best for that patient. Um, I mean, luckily that patient ended up doing well, but it was just ended up, you know, it was just such a challenging moment and still obviously gives me a little bit of the, the little nightmares at, at, uh, at night. So I think all of the, like I said, I think the theme of the day is uncertainty. I think that was the most challenging aspect of uh, the beginning of the pandemic and how we uh, took care of our patients. So early on, we had real care about how we were going to manage intubations and what would it look like for us um, right at the, the coal phase of providing care. And so we ran some simulations to help us understand the points of risk. And what it meant is that we donned PPE, we attempted simulated intubations and resuscitations, and then we covered our entire rooms and ourselves with, with UV glitter. And, and then we put a, our transport mannequin into an ambulance we drove it around town for a while and we brought it back to the emergency department and we offloaded the UV glitter mannequin and team and brought them into a different room and then pretended the patient died a while. And, and then we took a, a black light and we tried to see where all the glitter got, like who died on, in our team and, and what were the, the contact points and what's it like doing CPR in the back of an ambulance and what's it like doing CPR here and what's it like if we intubate you with a sheet What's it like if we intubate you with a Lucite intubating box? What's it like if we have two people in the room? What's it like listening to people on a walkie-talkie when nobody knows walkie-talkie um, etiquette? What's it like if we have to use these different uh, intubating in, um, instruments um, and suction instruments that are portable or disposable? Let's walk through all of that. And it was the best version of interprofessional education I've done in a while because it wasn't for the sake of let's do interprofessional education. It wasn't for the sake of, oh, this is some kind of learning environment. It was because of the sake of, we were all really anxious about, are we gonna kill ourselves coming to work? And so let's solve this problem. And let's solve this problem collectively. And so we had nurses, RTs, physicians, we had an ambulance crew, we had EMS managers, we had everybody there. And we talked and troubleshooted and practiced and we did it all together. And it was a poignant moment uh, because I think we, we've solved some of the problems that we hadn't anticipated. And I suspect it had a positive downstream effect on protecting all of our teams as, 
as we move forward. So, so that's one that kind of stands out for me. With ever-changing rules and increasing demand for PPE, the pandemic began as a mad scramble to simply keep up with the growing number of cases. Despite the warnings from Europe and Asia, hospital employees could only try to keep themselves, their families, and their patients as safe as possible. At the same time that these big-level issues such as PPE use and intubation were being discussed in the hospital, there was a sense of knowing that a monumental shift in the world was about to begin. The emergency room has always been the gateway to the hospital, but soon it became the front line of the battle against COVID. Yet despite the redeployments, rising case numbers, and the ever-changing guidelines, the hospital staff rose to meet this unprecedented challenge. We were all standing around waiting for someone to take up the mantle of because we were unconvinced that the hospital were going to be able to provide us with the necessary supplies. And that proved to be the case for those early weeks. Me and my partner were just like, just talking and we were just like, oh my God, what's going to happen? <laughs> like the, the sheer panic moment came in. I still remember that moment. And anxiety is one of those things that is even more contagious than any kind of respiratory virus. We knew something was coming, but we didn't know how soon it would be here. And neither did anyone else. From the end of January to the end of March, you wouldn't even know you were in the same country by the end. February 2nd, 2020, a 44-year-old man dies from COVID in the Philippines. This is the 361st death of the pandemic, and it is not the last. February 14th, 2020, in the most romantic place in the world, an 80-year-old tourist from China dies in a Parisian hospital. It is the 1,504th death. February 23rd, 2020. Italy faces off with the pandemic as its cases grow from 5 to 150. Lockdowns occur in a cluster of towns, with large gatherings being closed. February 29th. The USA reports the first official COVID-related death, even though two had died before this official announcement. March 13th, 2020. The CDC advises against gatherings over 50 people. This is the day the world went away from me. Universities across Canada closed. We were told only two weeks of lockdown, and we will flatten the curve. I remember remaining hopeful. This too shall pass. Things will be normal soon. I enjoyed online classes and not having to walk to school. But this was only the beginning. The emergency room has always been the gateway to the hospital, but soon it became the front line of the battle against COVID. Yet despite the redeployments, rising case numbers, and the ever-changing guidelines, the hospital staff rose to meet this unprecedented challenge. For the first time in a long time, we felt like we were at a fulcrum of collaboration that I've actually never experienced in my career. Emergency medicine was the way it was, you know, envisioned oh so many years ago when we donned as a specialty. You know, that was, it was a dream, almost dream state. Uncertainty was the only constant as the pandemic evolved. Yet despite that, healthcare workers worked hard to care for their patients and each other. 
where healthcare workers routinely go the extra mile, putting themselves at risk for people who are unknown to them. And I watched the entire team open the doors, walk into the room unprotected to initially be, begin reinitiation of CPR and to resuscitate the patient without particular concern or care for their own well-being. Nurses or physicians telling people who are at higher risk, don't go do that, I will do that for you. We have a 15-year-old male presenting with respiratory distress. He needs five liters of oxygen by nasal prongs. We are highly suspicious that this could be COVID. And so the pandemic began, not with a bang, but with a whimper as healthcare workers scrambled to ensure PPE and adjust to ever-changing information about the virus. Questions remained unanswered, and all healthcare workers could do was their best. And how important it will be for us to build up a generation of docs who have stepped up to the plate, um, a generation of nurses who have, you know, rebranded themselves and redeployed themselves all over the hospitals. And a lot of our, you know, other healthcare colleagues who have become leaders and managers in the light of all of this chaos. The people who work in an emergency department are a special kind of person. Um, they don't get warm fuzzies and they do provide care for systems that are broken, which has been manifest by COVID. They're doing it because they're trying to make a small little dent in the universe and they're trying to do something better for further fellow human. March 30th, 2020, the pandemic was declared and life under the omnipresence of COVID-19 has only begun. This is Katie Van Campen, and this has been Tales from the Frontline, a one-episode special taking you back to the beginning of the pandemic. As we move into 2023, we hope that this episode resonates with you and how far we've come since 2020. I'd like to thank our team, Dr. Ben Forrestal, our executive producer, Christoph Kolwakik, editor and sound designer, Michelle Chen, our coordinator, this episode was written by Katie Van Campen and edited by Nadia Hutan Merchuk and Claire Fila. Finally, we could not have done this without our interview team, Elisabetta Hoglund, Katie Bass Sylvester, and Gloria Kim. And finally, a huge thank you to Mac Emerge and the three physicians we interviewed, Dr. Jonathan Sherboneau, Dr. Teresa Chan, and Dr. Kevin Dong. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge Podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Back emerge out!